This morning we want to study the Bible. We want to continue our study in the life of David, and that means we're in the book of 2 Samuel. Our text this morning is going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, open your Bibles there. 2 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The topic we're going to find there is this. King Saul's death opens the way for David to become Israel's rightful king. But instead, Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, claims the throne. The title of our message, We Two Kings of Israel Are. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that as we understand it in its historical context, uh, how we see David still ascending to the throne and the divided kingdom and how he's going to unite it and all of that, uh, Lord, that we would also understand it in a personal context which is how you want to speak to us this morning, how you want to take this story so many centuries old and show us how very contemporary it is, how the things that David went through, though he was called to be a king, Lord, we can see ourselves in that story as we are your children and you have called us into various areas of life and ministry. And I pray, Lord, that all the things that you desire to do in us and through us and for us today would be accomplished by the presence of your son and by the work of the holy spirit we thank you and praise you in jesus name and those who agreed said amen i read in an article the other day you know you've arrived when the name of your company becomes a verb as in just google it and so google's this search engine but when people want to refer to searching the internet they say well just google that they don't usually say yahoo that Sounds weird. By the way, Yahoo, don't you think they need to upgrade their name? It, it's just a little weird. Now, Microsoft is trying to make inroads here by, with their search engine Bing. Uh, be, they have their campaign, just Bing it and forget it. Have you used Bing? Yeah, it's lame. Uh, so we're just going to keep Googling things around here. And so Google has arrived. How do you know when you have arrived? That is, when you've reached a place or a position or a prominence that you've been seeking. Well, there are probably a lot of different indicators that you've arrived, depending on what sphere of life we're talking about. One thing you're usually not prepared for is that once you've arrived, things don't always fall into place and get easier. In fact, they're just as liable to get a whole lot more difficult. David found that out. He'd been anointed at age 15 or 16 by Israel's last judge and first prophet, Samuel, in order to fulfill his calling as the king over the nation. It started a chain of events that found him fleeing for his life out in the wilderness for the next 15 or so years. Finally, Saul was dead. It cleared the way for David to take the position he had been anointed for and called to by God. David had arrived. Not so fast. Of the twelve tribes, only the tribe of Judah recognized him as king. That's all he'd rule for the next seven and a half years as the remaining tribes followed Saul's son, Ishbosheth. David would finally unite the kingdom and be crowned its king, only to have the Philistines immediately come out against him. And then there would be intrigue in his own household over the years and new temptations to overcome. David learned that you never really arrive in the sense we sometimes think. You don't get to a point where you can kick back and put the stewardship of your calling on cruise control. 
It's important we learn that as long as we are alive and in these bodies, we never really arrive. That's because our true destination is not in this world. It's not of this world. It's heaven. Our arrival is through resurrection after death or at the rapture if we are alive at the coming of Jesus Christ for the church. Meantime, we all do have callings. We're called to be Christians, first and foremost. But after that, there are many roles and responsibilities that we either choose for ourselves or that get chosen for us as we go through life. Here's the really great news in all of this. We are anointed for our callings. David, when he was called to be king, was anointed with oil by Samuel. In our text, he will be anointed with oil by the men of Judah as he assumes the role and responsibilities of their king. This outward physical anointing by pouring oil over him represented the fact that God would give and had given David his Holy Spirit to accomplish his calling. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in a much greater sense. He indwells you. He lives in you to teach and to lead and to guide and to prompt you through life. Our time this morning is going to be spent recognizing that we often get stalled in our callings or we abandon them outright because we think we've arrived and when we get there, it's not what we had in mind. It's in fact hard work. But it can be spiritual work when we realize we won't truly arrive until we see Jesus and that our anointing empowers us to both press on and persevere. I'm going to organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, you've been anointed to press on in your calling. And number two, you've been anointed to persevere in your calling. Let's take a look, first of all, at pressing on in verses one through seven. A little bit of uh, background to what we're talking about here in terms of calling and anointing. The Apostle John, in his first letter, said that you, quote, have an anointing. It's 1 John 2.20. few verses later he said and I quote the anointing you have received abides in you first John 2 27 he was talking about God the Holy Spirit who indwells believers when they come to faith in Christ then he says that because we have this anointing we know all things and we do not need that anyone teach you In other words, everything we need to know about life and godliness can be found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It doesn't cancel out teaching. It doesn't mean you don't need to listen to teaching or receive teaching. It means that everything that God wants you to know has already been provided for you in the Word of God and is brought to you by the Spirit of God through Uh, His moving in the life of the church and other people's gifts and whatnot. Uh, And so the idea here is that you have a calling as a Christian. You have individual callings in your life and you have the anointing. You have the empowering of God to accomplish it. Why so much failure then in our ranks as Christians? Well, one reason at least is the failure to press on in a calling when things aren't working out exactly as we planned or hoped. Whether it's your marriage or a ministry or a career or some other calling, you are to press on. Now, the king of Israel was dead. It was time for David to make a move. Verse 1, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, where shall I go up? 
and he said to Hebron. Having been anointed king over a decade earlier, David had come to respect God's timing. He wanted to know, he needed to know, if this was God's time for him to make his move. We are almost always in a greater hurry than God to get where he has us going. In that sense, we can be like shoddy contractors. I don't know if you've ever gotten involved with a shoddy contractor. I have real sympathy for contractors, by the way, uh, because I can't build anything. And everything I touch gets demolished. Do you, ever, do you have that? Are you like that? You're probably not like that. But when I try to do something, plumbing or carpentry or whatever, there's always one key thing that you don't know that ruins the whole thing, like shutting the water off first <laughs> or something like that. And some of you have helped me do things over the years. I'm very grateful for it. And you can attest to how absolutely stupid I am when it comes to these things. Now, my wife will tell you, and this is true, I don't want to know them either, uh, but uh, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but I, so I, I really, I love contractors, but there are shoddy contractors. Years ago, before we were Christians, Pam and I had a house built up in Running Springs. It sounds grander than it was. It's just a, a, a little tiny kind of a cabin thing on a, a lot that cost us $4,000. But, you know, it was a house that we were having built. And we got hooked up with a contractor. I won't give you his name. Uh, hopefully he's not a contractor anymore. Uh, he really wasn't one then. Uh, but uh, I, I give you an, in, an insight into how the entire process went. Whenever I had to meet with him, I had to go to the Golden Elk, which was a local bar in Running Springs. Didn't matter what time of day or night, I could always find uh, him there. Uh, and uh, he was attending to my needs as my general contractor. Uh, the house got built. And we thought we were going to move in and we had the movers come and we, you know, we didn't want to do it ourselves because up in the mountains and all of our furniture and all of our belongings got in the house and the, uh, the inspectors would not give us final approval. Uh, we couldn't get the electricity hooked up because at the last minute he had, the, the house was on a hillside. He had moved the house farther down the hillside to take advantage of the view. It wasn't in the plans and it changed everything with regards to how the utilities were hooked up. And so it was, a, it was a nightmare. For a year, we couldn't move into the house. Uh, we lived for a while in the contractor's house. He wasn't living there, and so we lived there. It's a house that didn't lock and didn't have heating. Uh, and so it was in the middle of winter. It was snowing. It didn't work. Then we lived with my mother-in-law for a while in Santa Ana. I won't say anything more about that. It actually went remarkably well. And we finally, the day came when we could move into the house, and this was, it was symbolic. And, and so I remember turning the heater on. I wanted to make sure the heat was going to work. And for some reason, I went over. It had floor ducting. And I looked down into the heater vent to make sure that it was going to come on. And when it did, it blew a 100 pounds of dust in my face because the contractors had swept all of the, con the dust into the duct work. Uh, then it, it worked for a few hours and then it, then I realized hot air wasn't coming out anymore. So I went downstairs. We had this little door, uh, you know, where you could go under the house from inside the house. It's, it's kind of weird. And so I was down there where the heater was and I realized that he hadn't used any sheet metal on, uh, the, you know, the heater ducts. They were just all duct tape, uh, to the heater. Uh, and so for the next year and a half, every winter I spent, 
about $100 on duct tape uh, and just, you know, go down. Oh, the heater's not working. I can take care of that. You know, anyway. Uh, anyway, there's more stories regarding that. But I'm aware of shoddy contracting, and it's no fun. Now, we don't want to be like shoddy contractors in our Christian life, cutting corners and building with subpar material. God is a master craftsman who is taking his time to complete the good work he's begun in us. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, there's the guy that you hire who is so concerned about detail that you, your project's never going to be done. He's there working day and night and night and day and day and night on that one joint, getting it just right. And you're like... Please, you know, and God, God has his own way and his own timing as a master contract. He knows how to move at a pace in our lives that is important and right. And we need to follow that and not be in a big hurry. Now, David also needed to know the place God was calling him to. Not just any place will always do. We shouldn't make decisions on what seems obvious and logical without first talking to the Lord. Somebody sent me a quote this morning. They attributed it to John Calvin. He said something to the effect, it's a paraphrase, something to the effect that if you want to cut off communication from the Holy Spirit, the best way to do it is to trust in your own intellect. And that's what we have a tendency to do sometimes. Uh, An opportunity or a situation will arise and we'll think, well, this is the logical choice. This is the obvious choice. I don't even really need to pray about that. Uh, But it's not... and, and. Maybe 90% of the time in your life, the logical, obvious choice is going to be the Lord's choice. But you need to at least seek the Lord. Uh, because if you, one thing you read about these Bible characters and learn about them, what was obvious wasn't always how the Lord was leading them. He had different strategies to grow them uh, as unto him. Now, verse 2. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ohinaham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. This reads to me like an inventory, two wives, an army of fighting men, multiple households. God had grown David even before he came into his calling. Essentially, he was already acting like a king over these 600 men and their families. And he was doing it in the best possible ways, And they were depending upon him. And so that's how his kingdom was forged. Each day we are to walk with the Lord in the place he has put us. We should have desires and dreams, goals and plans. But it's in our daily walking with him that we find our satisfaction, not in our achievements. David had to be a good leader to those 600 men and their families before he would be a great king over Israel. He couldn't think, well, I'm, I'm anointed to be the king over Israel, so uh, you know, I'll just kind of skate through this period of my life with these 600 men. I don't need to pay too much attention to this because I'm called to be the king. No, he was a good captain, a good leader to these men and their wives and their families, and it's forged him. We will accomplish some things, but they will only have eternal value to the extent that they are done in cooperation with the Lord according to his plans for us. And so wherever we are, we are to not despise what the Bible calls the day of small things. Uh, We can look ahead to greater things, but we need to be the best that we can be for the Lord right where he's called us 
even if we think he's called us to something greater. We need to be faithful in the little things before we can be faithful in greater things. Verse 4, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. The men of one tribe out of twelve tribes recognized David as their king. It was a great moment, don't get me wrong, but it was a very reserved moment. It seemed uh, small and to lack fanfare. Here you are, 15 years old, you're anointed to be the next king of Israel. You immediately go out and you kill Goliath. Fifteen years later, one tribe comes to you and says, you're our king. Some of your great moments are going to come and go with little fanfare in this life. That's because they are between you and Jesus. I've noticed too that often we tend to overlook great moments in people's lives because our ideas about what constitutes greatness are always more worldly than they are spiritual. Or at least we have a tendency to look at the outward. The most common example I could give that we'd all understand is a person who builds what we would call a great ministry or a great career, but sacrifices his or her family along the way to achieve it. All of us know people like that. Some of us have been people like that. Where there's, there's wow, look at that ministry. Wow, what about the children and the family? Well, it's a disaster. Look at that career. Look at that, that guy. His, his name is a verb for that whole industry. How's his family doing? Uh, which one? Because he's had multiple. He can't make it at home. He can't figure out what to do at home. You know, there's not much fanfare in the daily grind of loving your wife, submitting to your husband, and training up your kids in the way they should go. But it's those things that we ought to recognize as great. God created Adam. Then he formed Eve. Then he looked upon this family unit he'd established. And what did he say? He said, now this is good. A husband and a wife who are going to produce children, a family, he says, this is good. He didn't look at Adam and Eve and said, you're almost there. As soon as you build your first city, as soon as you establish your first dot com, uh, you know, as soon as you establish this ministry over here, then you'll, it'll be good. No, he said, this is good. This is it. This is what I intend. A man and a woman, a husband loving his wife the way Christ loved the church, a woman in submission to her husband as unto the Lord, raising godly children. This is good. But you and I know there's not much fanfare in that arena. And, and there doesn't need to be because it comes from the Lord. Verse 4, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, and they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. If you were here in our last study, you know they did a lot more than just bury him. Saul and his sons had been killed on the battlefield. Saul fell on his own sword, committing suicide. His sons killed outright in battle. Their bodies were mutilated and hung on a wall by the Philistines. These men of Jabesh-Gilead risked life and limb after Israel's army had been defeated and dispersed to go out and retrieve the bodies of these men in enemy territory so that they would treat them with respect. These men were unsung heroes who risked everything with no 
army to back them up in a time of defeat in enemy territory to do what was right. And so in verse 5, here's how David honors them. He says, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and he said to them, you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Think for a minute of all the ways David might have described and honored these heroes. Just think in our own terms. He might have called them brave or courageous or bold. He might have built a monument to them. He might have pinned them publicly with medals of honor. Instead, David said, the greatest thing that I can say about you the thing that really characterizes what you did is the word kindness. That's it. I rarely even use the word kind. I don't know about you. Excuse the pun, but what kind of a reward is recognizing kindness? Well, it's a big one, it turns out, because kindness is an attribute of God. Psalm 136, for example, the word is used 26 times to proclaim that God's kindness is eternal. In reviewing that psalm, one author writes, and I quote, The entire span of creation to God's redemption, preservation, and permanent establishment is touched upon in this psalm. It all happened. It is happening. It will continue to happen because of the Lord's covenant, faithfulness, and kindness. And so kindness is an attribute of God. And so David essentially says, you guys, yes, what you did was great. Certainly it was valiant, it was courageous, it was bold, it has all of those qualities. But the reason that you did it is more important than what you did. The reason you did it was because you have the Lord's kindness. And when you saw that situation, when you saw that the king of Israel beheaded, hanging on a wall, his body mutilated there with his sons because of the kindness of the Lord, because of the attributes of God, you knew that you couldn't stand that. It couldn't be. You had to do something about it. It wasn't to get a reward. It wasn't to get a medal. It was to serve the living God. And David said, so the greatest thing that I can say of you is that you are motivated by those things that are in the heart of God. And see, this then becomes to us a reminder that like David did with the men of Jabesh Gilead, so Jesus will do with you and I. He will judge us as to our motives and reward us for those that were godly. We may accomplish some things, we may do some good work, but even the good work that we do will have to stand the test of our motive. Why did I do it? Was it because I wanted something from the Lord, from other people, out of this life? Or did I do it simply because I'm a Christian and it was the thing I had to do? The thing that that I looked at it and I said, "I, I must act this way because Jesus fills my heart. I can't always know another person's motives. I can't know mine all the time, but I can let the Lord reveal mine to me to be sure that they are in line with His nature and that I act and react only because I'm in communion with Him. David was called to be king at a very young age, anointed by God for the position, then physically anointed by men. Now he had arrived and it was pretty dismal. Nevertheless, he put his whole heart into it. He determined to be the very best king of one tribe that he could possibly be. 
The people of Judah deserved no less. He decided to press on despite the possible disappointment and the obvious difficulties. And that is what you and I can do every day in our various callings despite actual disappointment and ongoing difficulties. Pressing on means you keep moving forward. It may be at a pace of three steps forward and two steps back, but you are still moving forward in your walk with the Lord. And that brings us to verses 8 through 11. You've been anointed to persevere through your calling. Persevering is someone uh, slightly different than pressing on. It assumes that as you're pressing on, there will sometimes be giant obstacles that will want you, uh, whose goal is to get you to quit outright. But you don't stop. You persevere through them. Look at David. Just as he was pressing on, being the best king over Judah he could be, a giant obstacle was thrown up against him. Verse 8, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam, and made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Now, we can only speculate as to why Ishbosheth was not on the battlefield with his dad and brothers. For his part, Abner refused to recognize David's anointing by either God or man. He wanted to continue the line of Saul. Even though Saul's kingship had ended in abject failure and his surviving son was not even one to join the fight. As long as we are in these bodies, our desire to further the kingdom of God, to seek ye first the kingdom of God in all of our callings, is going to be opposed by a rival king. It's Satan, the devil, who is called the prince of this world. Now, the devil doesn't personally come against you. He utilizes people, mostly non-believers, who oppose you at every turn. They don't need to know they're doing it. They're not possessed. It's just they're in the world. They think like worldlings. And, and they're against you. You've all been in situations that you don't like. At home, at work, in school, wherever. It just seems like, why are these people against me? Why can't we all get along, as it were? But instead, there are all these troubles and trials and problems. Sadly, sometimes even believers act that way when they're not guarding against the wiles and schemes of the devil. And some of the worst wounds you ever receive come from other believers. Listen, this opposition is going to continue until you die or are raptured. And that is why we must talk of perseverance. Now, by perseverance, I want you to know I'm not talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is variously understood by those of opposing theological schools. I'm simply talking about a Christian, a saved individual, persevering in the everyday ordinary sense of the word that they continue steadfastly in their callings. I'm talking about, for example, staying married when you have no biblical grounds for a divorce. I'm talking about hanging in there at work when it seems your boss or your co-workers are dead set against you. I'm talking about realizing that you have been anointed for your various callings and therefore you can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you rather than abandon your calling outright. And so verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned for two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. 
Seems as though there are five and a half years unaccounted for in Israel's leadership. If Isbasheth was only reigning two and a half years, there's a lot of different answers to that historically. One is that it actually took Abner five years uh, to eliminate the Philistine threat in the north before Isbasheth could really be said to be the king over that area. But whatever the answer, uh, we want to note the phrase, only the house of Judah followed David. I can't know the inflection from which that should be read, but I can hear it as a letdown, as a bummer. Because we're reading this, you and I are reading the story, and we think, okay, Saul is dead. The king is dead. What do you say? Long live the king. Now it's time for David to to move in, to take over with the anointing of God, to to be this great king over Israel. And then all of a sudden, there's Ishbosheth. Just when you thought all of Saul's sons had been killed on the battlefield. He's elevated king. And, And then the writer says, only Judah followed David. Not only did the northern tribes refuse to recognize David's calling and anointing, it went on for seven and a half years. Having pressed on for close to 15 years, would David persevere another seven and a half years? You ever have a moment like that in your life when you think, oh my gosh, this is going to go on for a long, long time. And if you're human, depending on the situation, you're ready to throw in the towel. What would David do? I don't think it's an odd question. David had a family, two of them actually. He had an army that was second to none. His men had their families. Together they had amassed lots of possessions. David could have possibly found some ground somewhere to be king over a much smaller group with a lot less headache. He could have quit and even made it seem spiritual when after all he'd done, Israel refused to unite and recognize him. I mean, we we don't normally see it that way because we know the whole story and we revere David as a man of God. But if, you know, David is a human being. He's a man of like passions as we are. And if I'm in this story, I'm thinking, okay, I've waited 15 years. Now I'm there. One tiny tribe wants me to be king. The rest of the tribes don't. How about I determine that this isn't God's will after all? What do we really know about Samuel? Maybe Samuel was smoking pot for all I know back then. Maybe he was getting high, you know. And so I don't know about this anointing thing anymore. Look at what I do have. I've got an army and I've got possessions. And I why don't I just stay in Ziklag or some other city out of harm's way and live the rest of my life in relative peace, hanging out as a king over these guys? What's wrong with that after all? What's wrong with it is that Samuel wasn't smoking pot. He didn't have his medical marijuana license. He was listening to the Holy Spirit. He had anointed David to be king and David pressed on and now he would persevere. The bigger question is for me and you. When it looks like I've arrived in my calling but things aren't what I anticipated, will I persevere? Will you persevere? Let me ask you this. Do you have a fallback plan? Some people have a fallback plan. Now, I want to be careful. I always have to be careful talking about things like ministry and job because it comes across as if you can never, for example, get another job. Uh, You know, you have to always stay in your job and be, you know, frustrated and all that. That's not true. I mean, God can lead you from job to job into new careers. That's fine. When I talk about it from the point of view of job, what I mean is that your first option isn't to quit because things are tough. 
I mean, life is tough. And God wants to get you through these trials. He wants you to endure these things because that's your calling. You're the light in that dark place. doesn't mean you always will be or that you can never leave. It just means that your first option isn't always to quit or to abandon your position. Now, there are some things that you can't abandon. There are some callings that you really shouldn't abandon. Marriage is one of them. And yet a lot of people do abandon that calling. They get married in the Lord or they become Christians after they're married and they're in this marriage. And marriage doesn't seem to be working out exactly the way they thought. If you're a husband, you know, your wife isn't treating you like a king. She doesn't recognize how hard you work and how you need to have all of your needs met and how even though she works, she has to do all the housework and all this. What's wrong with her? And, and life just isn't working out the way you thought. There's a little bit of tension. There's a little bit of problem. And if you're not careful, you start to have a fallback plan. You start to think that, you know, maybe divorce is an option. Or maybe you start talking to somebody, co-worker usually, typically, or a friend. The, wow, really? You're having trouble with your husband? Well, isn't that interesting? I'm having trouble with my wife and you're having trouble with your husband. Huh. Next thing you know, she is your wife. You are her husband. And you're having trouble with the, each other again because uh, no, everybody's a liar about the real problem was you. But there's these... So if you... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this one time. If you're in a marriage and you have a fallback plan, you might not even know it, but if you do, you're in serious trouble already. So there's some things you can't abandon. There are other things you want to abandon and you shouldn't. Now regarding perseverance... I cannot persevere on my own when the devil is opposing me. This isn't something we do on our own. I do it through Jesus Christ because he has given me his anointing, his spirit to walk through my various callings. You know, sometimes if, a, you know, if, if you're talking, let's say you're talking to a person, they're having trouble in some area of life, you know, whether it's their marriage or their ministry or their job, whatever. It's, there's only really two possibilities. If they're a Christian or they're not a Christian. If they're a Christian, then they need to know that, hey, you have an anointing from God. You have the Holy Spirit. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You have been enabled and empowered by the Spirit of God to go through this. If God doesn't remove you from it, He wants to take you through it. And get you to the other side. But if a person can't seem to do that, then you have to at least uh, entertain the possibility, maybe you're not a Christian. If you are unwilling to do that, I understand. It's a, it's, God's asking you to do something tough, to stay in this marriage, to stay in this situation. It's a tough situation. I can understand you being unwilling, but that's an issue between you and the Lord. But if you're unable, let's say are you, you're actually unable to do this, the only reason I can think that you would be unable to do it is that you really aren't a Christian. You don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You can't do all things through Christ who strengthens you because you don't really know Christ. I think sometimes we need to challenge even people we know more about, are you really a Christian? Not in a weird way, but... You know, just because you meet somebody, they go to church, they, they say, oh yeah, I became... You know, the more you question somebody, sometimes you think, oh, what do you mean by being a Christian? 
do you mean that you realize that you were a sinner? That you, on your own, could do nothing to save yourself? And then you realize that Jesus Christ was God come in human flesh? That he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, and he's alive today? And that you've asked him to forgive you your sins and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and you've had a a radical change in your life? Or that you grew up from an early age knowing that and you believe that? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And anybody who is absolutely, you know, sometimes you're asking people to do things they actually are unable to do because they don't have God's help to do it. Sometimes it's a Christian who's unwilling. Sometimes it's a non-believer who's unable. But what the point is here is that this is life. You get to a point where you think, this should be easy. I I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was all going to be rosy. But it's not working out that way. I want to quit. I want to abandon this. God says, well, why don't you let me strengthen you and see what we can do together. The bottom line is, you never arrive in this life, at least spiritually speaking. Being a Christian means you press on and you persevere in it until it's over. In the Bible, your life is sometimes compared to a race. You get to thinking about that, there are different types of races. There are sprints, there are marathons, there are long-distance runs. uh, And they each have their own kind of teaching. Another type of race, the one that best describes what we're discussing today, we don't talk about it too much, but it would be the obstacle course. Will you get stuck in the mud? Will you be unable to get over the wall? Will you have a hard time with the crawl? Will you fall off the balance beam or the overhead or whatever? You, you know what I'm talking about. Every great movie has a, you know, a military movie has the guy who can't try, quite make it and his buddy helps him and stuff like that. And you, you know, are you going to quit? Are you going to get off the course and say this obstacle, I got through the mud. I climbed over the wall. I crawled under the bungee sticks or whatever they are. I can't get over the balance beam. I'm done here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to veer off. I'm not finishing this course. You can get off the course. You can quit. But you don't need to. Because the Lord has promised to be with you. And to empower you and to strengthen you. One day you and I will arrive. It will be in heaven. You will be absent from your body and immediately present with the Lord at death. Or the Lord will return in the clouds and you'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into your glorified body and be with the Lord. I had a privilege on uh, whatever day it was uh, last week. I think it was Wednesday. I don't know. We did a funeral on Wednesday, graveside service. And uh, yes, it was Wednesday. It was important to me that I remember that in my age. Uh, but anyway, uh, and, and you know, it, it's, I, I love doing graveside services and funerals because it, you know it, it's it's at that moment you think is any is this true is any of this true is this real can i honestly actually powerfully realistically truthfully say this person is absent from their body and present with the lord and the answer to that is yes if they were a believer and to be able you know people say oh man that was powerful no it was just the word of god it's not powerful it's confident To look a person in the eye and say, this person is absent from this body that's in the coffin and he is present in heaven with Jesus Christ right now and the Lord will bring his spirit back and raise this body from the dead and when he does that, living believers will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. 
And see, it all kind of falls in. Then I think, the rapture, man, that's weird. Are we really? Yes, because the Lord says it's true. And then we will have arrived. In the meantime, we're to press on, we're to persevere, because it's in heaven that we will eventually be rewarded for it. And what exactly is the it you will be rewarded for? It's walking with the Lord every day in such a way that he guided and directed and prompted you by his indwelling spirit to do and to say those things that are consistent with his nature and with his character. You're going to be rewarded for being in love with Jesus. Let's pray.